4: The Tom Sumner program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com.
7: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Bits. They need a little disc Wanna sing it Shout it out loud to you My baby, it's time here.
4: And welcome back everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. Coming up in uh, December, December 7th in fact, will be the 80th anniversary of the um, attack uh, by the Japanese on uh, Pearl Harbor. And subsequently for the last few years there have been a lot of World War II-related anniversaries, and in some cases, discoveries. And and we're going to shift gears and talk about um, some memories of World War II with the uh, author of a new book called The Lost Cafe Schindler. And it is uh, actually written, um, I don't know if you'd call it a memoir, but it certainly uh, uh, tells some some family history. Um, the author is Mariel Schindler. She joins me by phone. Hi, Mariel. Welcome to the uh, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Tom. It's lovely to be on your show, which I'm, I'm very excited about. That
4: um, you know, we were talking a little bit before we went on the air, um, and and you were asking me about where I came from, and I was I was about to share this story with you that there's there's a rumor in on my mother's side of the family. ...that one of her relatives came over on the Mayflower. I've never been able to verify that. And I I bring that up because you did... In the process of, of putting this book together... ...you had done some research because... ...you didn't believe everything that your elders told you... ...about the family history...
1: Yes I mean that that's right and you you queried in, a, in in your introduction whether you would call it a memoir um the, interestingly the book has been called a real life detective story and that probably captures it more accurately in that um I certainly had a, a difficult relationship with my father to put it mildly I, he was he was charming he was good looking he was tall he was persuasive he was a brilliant raconteur but He also had a very, very difficult relationship with truth and he outright lied about certain things. So when he died in twenty seventeen I felt I felt really the need to find out what was true and what was not true. So when you talk about your family possibly coming over on the Mayflower, that's that's a fantastic family legend, and it may be something that you can track down. Yeah, if but, it, um, if
4: it's even true, and I'm not sure that I believe. <laughs> I, I don't think I believe that it is true, or or that anyone has traced our family back that far. But it's um, but when I was reading about. You and and your father and his relationship with the truth—that story just popped into my my head um, because at the center of all of this detective story is this family business in Austria, Innsbruck, I think. Um, yes. The Lost Cafe Schindler is the name of the book. Cafe Schindler. Is a real place and a real thing, and and a place where the stories your father told might have taken place.
1: Yes, I mean that's right. The the Cafe Schindler um, did exist and now exists again, and I'll tell you why. Um, I mean, and the funny thing about this business is that. It it was sort of an eyewitness to history, and it's it's another way of telling the whole First and Second World War story through the eyes of the café. And the reason for that is that it was founded just after the First World War, when my grandfather Hugo Schindler returned from fighting on the Southern Front. And that Southern Front was one of the most brutal First World War fronts because it was fought up in the mountains. And the Austrians were largely on top of the mountains, and the Italians were fighting their way up the mountains. So you can imagine how well that went. And, um, you know, it was a, a foul and horrible and murderous front. And he survived that front and returned to an Austria that, as we know, after the First World War, was destitute. It was broken economically. And... His reaction to that as a son of a, uh, of a family that was mainly involved in distilling and jam making was to open what what was the only can only be described as an oasis of fun um, in the middle of innsbruck and so he opened this extraordinary cafe it was the only place that you could have dancing and live music and when I went to school in Austria in the 1980s. At a point when the cafe no longer existed, Um, it it, I I would meet parents of friends of mine, and they would sort of go all misty eyed when they heard my name, Meryl Schindler, and they would go, Ah, I used to dance all night at the cafe. So it was a real, it was really embedded in people's psyche. And it was a wonderful place, over four floors with two ballrooms, a gorgeous cafe overlooking the main road, um, with you know views of the mountains, and you could just see into the old part of town. And it was a you know a really it was a happening place, as we'd say now.
4: And and I read someplace it was known for pastries, but the way you describe it, it was considerably more than than a bakery yeah, or was, a donut it was shop.
1: More than yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if, if insofar as my my grandfather had a mission statement, which is obviously a very modern word, it was to su- serve you know darn good coffee and cake. But at the same time, you know, he he was running you know balls and live music. And I know Tom, you're 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 a musician at heart, um, and I think you would have got on very well with my grandfather. He introduced jazz to Innsbruck, and he you know on a summer's evening in the 1920s and 30s. You'd walk down the main street, and you would hear jazz flowing out of the windows of the cafe, um, and a lot of live music, uh, which I think is obviously particularly precious nowadays, as, as we're coming out of the pandemic, to recognise that 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 live music was where it was at at the cafe,
4: and and a place where where people could go and congregate and meet people, both
1: That's indeed indeed
4: both people they knew and people they didn't know.
1: Yes, and you know it was it was it was very special. It was the you know the epicenter of social life in in Innsbruck in in this small town in, in Western Austria, a very beautiful town in Western Austria. Of course, you know as you look at what happens, I say the cafe was an eyewitness to history. Uh, my goodness, yes, you know every single parade uh, that went down the centre of town passed under the windows of the cafe. So. On in time towards the late 1930s, 1937, 1938. You know, my grandfather is watching Nazi parades under his windows, uh, move through his town, the town in which he was born and where he was a very assimilated businessman. You know, this was not a town that was full of um, Jews who were who were sort of separate. The the, the very few Jews that lived in Innsbruck were. Completely assimilated. They didn't even have, have a synagogue; they had a prayer room, and so they they were they lived side by side peacefully and very happily with their neighbors until the
4: Nazis arrived. More about the lost cafe Schindler with self-described accidental author Mariel Schindler. Straight ahead.
2: Everybody's doing a brand new dance now.
4: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
8: Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio
2: Show.
4: More about the lost Café Schindler with self-described accidental author Mariel Schindler straight ahead. What happened when the, when the Nazis arrived? Um, did the, the Café Schindler continue to operate, and um, what kind of hoops did it have to jump through to survive World War II?
1: Well, the cafe itself survived, but um, very quickly in 1938, my grandfather was forced to sell it to uh, one of the Nazi cronies of the of the local Gauleiter, the local administrator for the area, and so the cafe then was reborn as a as, as the Cafe Hebel. So it changed its name from Cafe Schindler to Cafe Hebel. And essentially became a Nazi officer's drinking club. Wounded officers, officers on leave, would all congregate there in this cafe. And, of course, jazz itself was banned. The Nazis uh, decided that jazz was degenerate music and banned it. But uh, they had their own drinking songs and music. And the uh, music continued to be central to what was going on in, in, in this new reborn cafe. And the peculiar thing about the cafe was that it was so important to morale, um, even perceived so by the Nazis, that when um, the the chap, the Nazi who was running it, uh, was arrested for black marketeering, the um, one of a very senior Nazi, Himmler, intervened and said, rather than putting this chap in front of the firing squad because black marketeering was a was a capital offence in those days, um, let's just you know, send him to the front for a couple of weeks to, so he can atone, and then for goodness sake, let's send him back to the cafe to run it again. So that was how important it was. It actually, you know, in in essence, it saved this chap's life. Um, at the end of the war, uh, all the senior Nazis scarpered mainly into hiding, um, and um, the cafe was then restituted to my grandfather. Sadly, my grandfather, having rebuilt it from, from the rubble, it was war-damaged by the Allies, um didn't live for terribly long after the war him mean, he was one of the very very few Jews who went back to Austria and um, he died unfortunately in 1952 and the cafe was then um, passed on to my father uh, who inherited it jointly with a cousin and my father was not a good businessman unlike his fa- his father and uh, he unfortunately then you know basically fell out with all and sundry and he sold the cafe um, in, in the sort of late 50s early 60s. And so the, it, it, it then disappeared. It carried on a little bit as Café Schindler under new ownership, but the name then disappeared. And then by the time I was living in Austria, it was no longer. But the magical thing about this institution is that it still lived on in people's heads. And so when a young restaurateur 10 years ago decided he wanted to open a café in the exact same building, he, you know, he knew nothing about our family. You know, we were, we were long gone from Innsbruck. But no matter where he went, whether it was the licensing office or the planning office or whoever he spoke to, and talked about this particular building, they said, my friend, it has to be called Café Schindler. And he was like, well, who the hell are these people? And he went (laughs) to the local archives, plugged in our name, and sure enough, saw all these incredible photos of the café in its heyday in the 1930s. And so he decked it out in Art Deco style, the 1930s style, and reopened it. And it's going to celebrate uh, the cafe as a cafe will celebrate its 100th anniversary next year in 2022. And that is quite something for an institution to live that long through such a turbulent period in European history, which is why I say it is very much an eyewitness to, to, to local history and European history in particular. Um, and I'm very proud of the fact that my name is now back on the high street in Innsbruck. I don't have shares <laughs> in the cafe. I don't own the cafe, but I'm mates with the guy who who runs it, and it's doing brilliantly well. And I I'm very proud of that fact because I think it is the only previously Jewish owned business that is still going in 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 Innsbruck.
4: That in itself is is remarkable. But um, but the place had because it it drew people from, I would imagine, all walks of life. There are some big names from the early to uh, middle part of the 20th century that came and went, and your father told a lot of stories um, about the people that he was connected to or got to know or was related to. Did those and and you say he had a, a difficult relationship with the truth, uh to say the least. But did those tall tales get taller every year?
1: <laughs> yes, I mean to some extent. I think my father because he was because he he never achieved what he set out to achieve, which I think his 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 drive was to I suppose have a family that was um at the sort of economic level that his family was at before the, before the Second World War. So, you know, well-to-do, middle class, you know, rich, basically, in his mind. And he never achieved that. We, we, we were very much a family where he, he had businesses which... Always went into into always went bankrupt basically, and um, we were constantly sort of um, on the run from creditors. We had bailiffs arriving at our door. So, almost as a counterpoint to that, he would tell us these endless anecdotes about how we were related, related to Franz Kafka, to Oscar Schindler, to Alma Mahler, the wife of Gustav Mahler, who was, she was a Schindler, to Adele Bloch-Bauer, who's the subject of. Painting the woman in gold um, to Bruno Kreisky, the you know the post-war president of Austria, and even to someone who he described as his uncle, a Jewish doctor, who he said had treated both Hitler himself and Hitler's mother, Clara Hitler, um, way back before the First World War. Now, you know, as you grow up. mind, and I would say, well, who, how, where, and of course, he could never fill in the facts for me, and therefore, I stopped listening, and it was after he died, I thought, well, I really do need to now work out whether any of this stuff that he told us was true. Was there um, ever
4: any connection between um, your Schindler family and and the, uh, the famous Schindler's list?
1: Well, it's a my father certainly claimed there was and <laughs> the, the two families came both came from upper silesia so sort of part what, what became part of the prussian empire um but it is fair to say that oscar schindler was a card-carrying nazi and my family were jewish so if there is any relationship at all it is way 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 back in time and certainly not something that you could ever claim Um, I mean, you know, things like the relationship with Franz Kafka, that I can trace. It is a very, very distant relationship. And again, not something personally I would brag about. Alma Mahler, no, definitely not a relation. Adele Bloch-Bauer, again, a very, very distant relation. But the weirdest story of all was this story about um, my father's uncle. So he he claimed that he both Result of treating Hitler and Hitler's mother, he became essentially a protected person in Linz in Upper Austria, and the Nazis didn't touch him. Now, again, that seemed completely incredible because why would Hitler protect one particular Jew? But that story turned out to be true, and you know, I was incredibly surprised when I found that was true.
4: What prompted you to um, explore? This this history and and ultimately to put it together to share with the rest of us.
1: I think that um, initially I didn't set out to write a book. I, I'm a bit of an accidental author. It's it's true to it's fair to say. I mean, I um, I needed to sort out fact from fiction in my head, and I was also very conscious that my father had fallen out with an awful lot of people. And so after he died, I started contacting those people. And some of them were incredibly reticent about talking to me because they had really disliked my father. Um, I, there's one particular cousin who I'm now in, in regular contact with in, in, in the U.S. And I, you know, he, I contacted him very cautiously and I agreed to fly over to the U.S. to meet him. And I stepped into his house in Massachusetts. And the first thing he said to me was, Yeah. I remember your father. He was a crook and a shyster. (laughs) Uh, Bearing in mind I'd just flown 3,000 miles to meet him, it was a somewhat surprising um, welcome. But, you know, we overcame that initial awkwardness. And he ushered me into his sitting room and he gave me some photos I'd never seen before. Um, Extraordinarily beautiful photos of our joint family. And we bonded over that, and him realizing that I was, whilst I was my father's daughter in bloodline, I was certainly not in in aspiration or any any other sort of facet of my father, so that I had not inherited some of the traits that he disliked in my father.
4: Now, I I read somewhere that that you found a, a box of basically old memories, photographs and memorabilia and so on. Um, What were some of the surprises in that box that may have contributed to you wanting to find out more?
1: Yes, I mean, when my my father died in 2017, um, we, as as one often has to do, had to go and clear out his, his cottage. And... Um, that was a very difficult task, not just because, you know, he just died, but also because there were papers everywhere, papers on every surface. There was a double garage full of papers in crumbling cardboard boxes. And it was I mean, it was horrendous. I mean, it, I would like something out of some sort of, you know, film, basically. And we, we started sifting these papers and trying to work out what we should keep, or what we shouldn't keep. And amongst those papers, you, you've asked a very astute question, Tom. That you know there were things that were really, really shocking. So, for example, my father had hired private detectives to uh, watch his two daughters, me and my sister. <laughs> so we came across, <laughs> and you never
4: stuff. knew that before.
1: No. no, of course we didn't. Um, and we came across these private detective reports about us, our boyfriends, etc. I mean, it was it was really shocking don't like to think that that's what your father has been up to. Now, in his mind, I'm sure he felt he was just looking after us. But I mean, it was a pretty strange way of going about things. And there were lots and lots of Nazi era documents there as well, so full of swastikas and Heil Hitler's. Uh, And I speak fluent German, so I was able to read these. And I started to piece together what Report, and was regularly trotted out to us as children. There was only one problem with that story. I have incontrovertible evidence that my father was never there, that he lied about where he was on Kristallnacht, and he lied about it for his own ends. He was in fact safely in London, and he was only 13 at the time, he was safely in London, uh, because he arrived in London in September 1938, so there is no way he was in Innsbruck in November 1938.
4: In telling this story, Muriel, do you feel? Did you feel as you were putting this together at at times as if you were, I don't know, ratting out some family secrets?
1: It's an interesting question. I mean, as I said, I set out to um, find out what was true and what was not true, and truth is very important to me as a, as a lawyer. Um, and to some extent, there's a little bit of, I suppose, dirty laundry in there, in that, you know, I have to explain that my father went to jail and he told these these untruths. But at the same time, it was incredibly important to me that my family and my newly discovered family were happy with what I was writing. For me, um, it was... You know, it would have been ludicrous to try and write a story that, or write a book that, um, had you know further drove people apart. Uh, given there had been so much feuding, and I am delighted that all my newly discovered relations, as well as my two sisters, as well as my children, are all really, really happy with the book and very proud of it, and proud of the story that it tells.
4: And how did? how did it come to be a book Mariel? um y- you know it's it's one thing to want to find out you know trying to sap- separate fact from fiction but but then to compile it and and publish it in this way how did that how did that come about were there people who encouraged you was it something yeah. you decided all of a sudden, no, this needed to be a book. I was
1: encouraged to do it. So it's a lovely question in the sense that I um, I had a client who was working in publishing. I'm an employment lawyer, and um, I asked the question that all employment lawyers always ask their clients, which is, "So, what are you going to do next as he's, lo- as, he's lost, as he's lost as he'd lost his job?" And um, he said, "Well, I'm going to become a literary agent." And, you know, in 30-odd years of practicing law, no one had ever said that to me as their new job path, and um, I, I sort of, you know, filed that away and kind of see later in my head, and after I'd finished acting for him, I sent him an email saying, look, I've got this kind of story in my head, and, you know, kind of vaguely thinking this might make something of a book, um, but, you know, and various people have told me I ought to write a book, what do you think, thinking, well, he's, you know, he's, he's going to say that's ludicrous, don't be so stupid. And of course, he rang me seconds later and said, "Will you be my first client?" So I had an amazing literary agent who was just incredibly supportive and encouraged me throughout.
4: Well, yeah, when you're the only client, it's a lot easier to get your calls returned, <laughs> isn't it?
1: <laughs> he had a few others then by the by the end. So he's, he's, no, he's a good he's a good agent. Um, but I was I was his first client, which I think makes a, a particularly close bond, shall we say.
4: Well, that's wonderful. And you described yourself as a as an accidental author. <laughs> and and this is your first book, but do you have the bug now?
1: I absolutely loved the research, the writing, the meeting people, the, the you know, endlessly wide reading that you need to do to write a book. So, yes, I definitely have the bug. Um but I think also you need to be sure that you're writing something that people you know, will actively want to read, and you've got to have a purpose in that of of more than just sort of self-aggrandizement. So, um, uh, So yes, I've got some ideas on other stuff I might want to explore and write, but whether that makes it into sort of published format, I don't know yet. But I certainly absolutely loved the research and writing. And I'd certainly encourage anyone who has interesting family stories, whether it's Mayflower-related, as in your case, Tom, <laughs> or otherwise, but it's you know it's a good thing to sit down and write this stuff up um, because if you don't write it up, then it does get lost. And um, it's very therapeutic, um, piecing piecing these things together, particularly if you've had difficult relationships with family members.
4: Uh, what kinds of things would you be interested in writing, Mary, or would it be... Uh, um you know, more, more history or, or would it be, um, perhaps historical novels, uh,
1: I've toyed with all sorts of things. These are good questions. Um, I've toyed with all sorts of things. Um,
4: I'm imagining I'm, a series of, yeah, of yeah, detective no, think, stories with the, with Cafe Schindler as the backdrop.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and you playing music in the background. There you the, go, jazz, of course. Yeah, I can I can see the film. I can see the film. <laughs>
4: Well, I think this is a, a, a fascinating story and, and just the fact that, that the history of the Café Schindler, um, you know, being basically taken out from under the family and then, re, you know, returned to the family and, and being the only Jewish business to survive World War II. Um, in in Innsbruck. Yeah. Y- yeah, that's just um that that is an important story and uh um fascinating. So um I'm I'm gonna pose the question that you asked <laughs> the man who became your literary agent. Um, what's next for you?
1: Well, um I carry on as a lawyer in London, obviously. Um I have, a, I have a sort of reasonably big day job, but um, I'm, I'm currently researching um, a couple of family members who have, shall we say, sort of disappeared into history. Um, and you know, there's something nice about rescuing people. One of the things that was very important for me in this particular book is to, to rescue from history um, my, some of my relations who didn't make it out and um, give them a voice and um I did that and I have I found some diaries and a letter from my great aunt Martha, who I feel very close to, although I never met her, she died in Auschwitz. Um but one of the things that was very, very important to me was to give her some oxygen, give her a, a new life beyond where beyond the horrors of where she ended up.
4: Well, I love the title of the book. It's The Lost Cafe Schindler One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth by Mariel Schindler. Um, Mariel, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and the book and your work, Past, Present, and Future. Do you have a website?
1: I do, indeed. I have both an author website and a lawyer website, so it kind of of depends on what they're looking for. (laughs) So my author website is marielschindler.com, very easy to find. And on there, you'll, you'll find a little bit, a bit more about me, a couple of interviews, um, and also um, some recipes, because one of the things that's so nice about being the granddaughter of someone who ran a fabulous um, patisserie and bakery is, of course, that he handed down recipes to us. So for those, so those people who are interested in apple strudel and sachertorte and, and sort of classic Austrian baking, there are some recipes on that website, and indeed in the book. In fact, my original tagline for the book was "One Family, Two Wars, and Many Cakes." However, that <laughs> was thought to be not not sufficiently serious enough, so I smuggled the recipes into the back of the book. So it's not just a, a a sort of a memoir or a detective story; it also contains recipes.
4: Well, see, now you've got me hungry for great pastry, and of course <laughs> for jazz. <laughs> Mariel, it's been an honor and a privilege to uh, meet you and get to talk with you a little bit. Best of luck with the book and uh, keep up the good work.
1: Thank you, Tom. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Have a lovely day. Bye.
4: Take care. Again, uh, Mariel Schindler talking to me from uh, London about her family's uh, cafe, the Lost Cafe Schindler, One Family, Two Wars, and the Search for Truth. We'll have... More of the Tom Sumner program straight
2: in Old-fashioned Radio
9: For a new generation The Tom Sumner
2: program.com. The Tom Sumner the Tom Sumner program
4: Hello there citizens, Darkwing
2: Duck here, and every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous, Darkwing Duck out.
6: While we've been staying safe at home
4: This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
0: Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program.
5: few years, a type of meeting place has grown up throughout the country, which is called a coffee house. There are many uninitiated people who have never been into a coffee house, I being one of them. Uh, We're seated now at a table across from which is a man uh, who seems rather depressed. Uh, uh, sir, uh, you, you are depressed. Uh, uh, would it be getting too personal to ask you why? I'm not pretty. You are yeah. depressed because you feel you're not attractive. I'm not attractive. You're not good looking. No, I'm not. Well, what would you say, sir? That's why I'm I... mainly
3: depressed. Well, may I may
5: I may I say something to you, sir? Yes. You are a very attractive person. You're as attractive as nine out of 15 people I know.
2: (Laughter)
3: You're very kind,
5: but you are. You're not
2: you're an unattractive very, person. You're very
3: sweet, but I, I know that the truth, and I face it every morning. You're a morning. good-looking man, sir. I'm not a man. I'm a woman. <laughs> oh,
2: oh,
5: oh! I see. Oh, I, 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 I beg your pardon. Uh, we'll, we'll go over to one of the other tables now okay. and see if we can speak. Uh, goodbye. Thank you very Bye. much, sir, uh, madam. <laughs> madam, um, there's a gentleman sitting here wearing a pair of Levi's, a nicely laundered T-shirt. Uh, looking very much like an actor uh, I might describe him as looking like a cross between uh, Marlon Brando and Joanne Woodward <laughs> I, I want to explain that You do have blonde hair May we sit and talk with you, sir? Uh, if you are so uh, in your mind, too uh, Yes Was I right, sir? Was I right? Are you an actor?
3: Yes, I uh, have to be a uh, lesbian <laughs>
5: I think, uh, I think, <laughs> I think, sir. I think you. Can I check you on that? I think it's uh, you mean thespian. Well, uh, is that what thespian? Thespian, actually. Thespian. Yes. Yes. I'll
3: never get that wrong again. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh, Sir, who is your... Who do you consider the greatest actor we have in America The
3: greatest actor in America is Tallulah Brackett.
5: Well, she's a a great actress. Yeah, I
3: I mean, I don't mean an actor-actress. I mean that she knows what she's doing up there, you know? Well, who else
5: do you like? Who would you pattern yourself after? I would
3: pattern myself after... I loved that picture, The Fugitive Kind. I loved it very much. Very much. (laughs) Uh, So... (laughs)
9: Uh, so you're trying to... Look? I
3: try to uh, be like Brando with my T-shirt and just look uh, very much like Joanne Woodward, who I love very much.
5: I love her. Well, you know, usually when people...
3: I also look a little like the producer. I love him, too. Marty Giroux, that a Marty Giroux. He produced that picture. You'll notice my shoes are exactly like his. I love that
5: picture yeah. that much well, sir, that I became everything in it. I see. <laughs> sir, I think I made a mistake. You're not an actor, actually. No, I'm not not an actor, well, but, I'm, I'm...
3: but i love to hang out here.
5: Okay. Well, it was a pleasure to Well,
3: it was a pleasure almost to be an actor.
5: <laughs> well, I, I, yeah. I, I've got to wend my way through the crowd. Oh, get... good luck on your wending. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and
5: goodbye. And if I can do anything for you, you just call upon me,
3: sir. <laughs> can I talk to you now? <laughs> <laughs> no.
5: No. No. Okay.
3: okay. I understand. You have to go to other people yes. on the record.
5: I know that. Yeah, yeah. I know
3: that. All right. I watched you before you in the coffee house.
5: All right, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> ladies goodbye. So long.
3: I hope I'm an actor. <laughs> (laughs)
5: We're going to a corner of the coffee house now. Uh, On the walls surrounding this table are many, many paintings. There's a gentleman sitting here with a palette, palette knife, some brushes, some oils. And I imagine that he is the gentleman who painted these paintings. Am I right, sir? That is correct in your assumption. And the painting... uh... You are totally correct. Uh, The painting... And impeccably dressed, if I may say so. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. A lovely tie. Thank you.
3: Gradually blending into the color of your suit.
5: You are always interested in color and design. Color is my life. I am color. Your name is... uh, What is your name, sir? Corinne Corfu. (laughs) Corinne Corfu. You are Greek. I hope I am Greek. I would like to be Greek very much. Well, that is a Greek name and you have a Greek accent. Yes. Well, then perhaps I am. (laughs) Well, don't you know your... Don't you know your derivation?
3: No, I do not know uh, my derivation. Gypsies stole me as a child. (laughs) A band of gypsies.
5: And you were brought up where?
3: I was brought up in the Persian Gulf, right here in Miami.
2: (laughs) The Persian
3: goat, no, it's a gypsy tea house. The rest are called the Persian goat. I would like
5: to talk to you about your paintings. Yes, you certainly know. It's my life color and
3: art. I love art. They (laughs) are very unusual. I noticed that God bless you for your perceptions
5: <laughs> I noticed one You also uh, You sculpt too I noticed Main, uh,
3: Sculpting and painting All the
5: arts uh, There is a, a metallic sculpture there That is very interesting Yes metal Metallic What do you call that It's just a series of wires uh, In a grid like effect what Oh are you, you mean co- above it? the door Yes what do you call it? Yes that? that's called the air conditioning <laughs> <laughs> Yes no I Oh I'm sorry I'm sorry sir
3: I did not uh, make that. No. Uh, no. The, the feathers, that. the feathers company made, but it's very beautiful. Yes.
5: Your paintings are very abstract, I noticed. Yes, but they
3: don't blow air out.
5: Okay. Like <laughs> um, the
3: machines.
5: No. May I ask you about some of the paintings? Yes, First, certainly made. That painting there that is entitled The Gull on a Hot Rock. Yes. Now, yeah, I yeah, don't that. see anything on that but a bunch of little specks. Yes,
3: well, I saw the girl on a hot rock from over five miles away.
5: Uh, oh, I see. I was see. standing on
3: a cliff. That's why I painted re- in the perspective the three little dots.
5: Now, uh, getting closer, sir, I'm, uh, may I examine a little more closely? Certainly, not too close. Yes, yes. <laughs> now, that is not paint, those dots. They look like... That's... Those are flies. Sir. Yes, they are. They're flies. But you didn't paint that. Those are real flies. No, I took
3: them, uh, caught them in my hand until the air was out of their bodies and they died. <laughs> uh, and then I, uh... You it pasted was, them onto the- Put little p- dots of blue and put them on the dots <laughs> and they represent the call on the rocks. I had to kill them. If I had not killed them, if they were not dead and glued to my picture. <laughs> then I have no picture. <laughs> <laughs> fly away, I got nothing, Charlie.
2: <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> In the
5: dark. Well, i the excuse you. What are you going to buy? Well, sir, may I ask <laughs> you about this particular abstract?
3: Yes, they're These mainly don't... impressionistic, post-impressionistic, yes. pre-impressionistic, and impressionistic.
5: <laughs> yes, this one is more of a, an academician type of painting. No, it's not. <laughs> well, for instance, it's very graphic, it's very graphic, Yes, it, it's, it, very the, it's very graphic. It's very graphic. It's a draftsman like quality. The spaghetti looks like spaghetti. The limp salad looks like limp salad and the garlic oh, bread oh, looks oh, like garlic bread. Oh, oh
3: no. That's not a picture. That's my supper. <laughs> I, I, it happens to be resting on a frame and in my easy <laughs> Oh uh, that's my dinner. I eat that. Oh, uh, I'm sorry, yes. sir.
5: It looks like... do you
3: like wait a minute. Do you really like it?
5: Well it is Do you think it looks like the a composition a is collage of a Yes, it, I thought it was thickly painted. I tell you what. <laughs>
2: if
3: you really like it I can lacquer it up and give it to you for forty dollars.
2: <laughs>
5: no, I'm afraid. I'm no? afraid I wouldn't want to take your deprive right. you of your <laughs> supper, sir. How
3: about just a coffee and cake?
5: <laughs>
3: Maybe not for twenty dollars.
5: No, sir. Give I... me
3: a dollar and a half for the coffee. <laughs>
5: <laughs> sir, I'm really not interested. Give me forty cents. You can have All right, here's forty cents, sir. All right. Thank you here's very the much. coffee
3: and cake. Nice working with you. <laughs> yes. Sir. I hope you come in again. I will, sir. God bless your tie. I don't want the coffee. Oh, no, you want the picture with the flies? No, you just keep give it. Give me a dime. <laughs> you can have it. I kill more flies. What the hell is it? <laughs> 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 All right. Goodbye.
5: In a corner of the coffee house is a gentleman sitting with a very, very strange instrument on his lap. Uh, sir, may we speak with you? Hello. <laughs> uh, what is your name, sir? May we get your name?
3: Uh, my name is uh, Charlie Grape. <laughs> <laughs>
5: Charlie Grape. Yes. Uh, do you perform here at the uh, coffee
3: house? Yes. Uh, on occasion, I do, and then they uh, they kind of get mad at me,
5: and then I don't. I think I can get permission for you to play for us. i like Can to... you? Yes. Uh, I, I would. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever gotten permission here. Kinda... We'd certainly like to hear a sample of your music.
3: Certainly, let me just get tuned up I'm trying to find an A here There it is, there it is Got it first shot out of the box
5: my A Now what are you going to play for us? Uh, 22 men All right, for the record, 22 men 22 men, here we go Sung by Charlie Gray yeah, Here
2: we
3: are <laughs> I get mainly A out of it
2: Don't <laughs> well, no. get more
3: than A out of <laughs> it Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Twenty-two men fell down, down to the ground. Twenty-two men fell down and hurt their knees. Would you like your head to hear the release? <laughs> Uh, do you have
5: one? Yeah. Now twenty-two men oh, fell down and hurt <laughs> That's not a release, sir. That's the same as the... Uh, yeah. bridge.
3: Okay. Okay, how about another t- completely different song and a new tune? Yes, i
5: like Okay. Can you make it up on the spot? I certainly
3: can. It's my best part. This is extemporaneous. Yeah, whatever. 22 German soldiers hurt their knees. <laughs> <laughs> 22 German soldiers... I think sorry, you know sorry, that, too. Yeah, yeah, it's very similar to the other one. Yeah, well... How does it differ? It differs in the fact that the first 22 men were not German soldiers. <laughs> well, is this a... The enough? second 22 men are German soldiers. Well, it's the same. You, can you play the same uh, that they hurt their knee? That's right. You caught me there. Yeah. Can you, you sing me. something
5: completely different? <laughs> okay. Completely different. You know the uh, the calypso balladeers make up songs right on the spot, topical songs. Yes, they can do. Can you do that? I'll try to. Okay. Okay.
3: <laughs> Twenty-two calypso man. <men. laughs>
2: no, I mean, Is that what no, you meant? No, I meant
3: something topical. Something topical. Yes. I'll try something topical. Let's see what's happening in the world today here in our great nation. Got it.
4: Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner.